Welcome to Habits for Happiness with Lady Fuller. The path to happiness is paved with healthy habits. We spend much of our lives searching for happiness when the key we're looking for is right there inside of us. We can discover that key through habit change, which you're about to learn about. Now, here is your host, Lady Fuller. Welcome, everyone, to Habits for Happiness, the show where we discuss habits you can employ in your daily life to make you happier. Here on Habits for Happiness today, to talk about the habit of compassion, one of my favorites, is best-selling author and psychologist Catherine Gildener. Catherine has written a couple of memoirs, as well as one of my favorite, favorite books, um, Good Morning Monster, Five Heroic heroic journeys to recovery. And in this book specifically, she talks about her psychology practice and talks about these five um, folks that she, I, she dubs heroes. And I absolutely think are heroes that despite their, despite their desolate childhoods have overcome their traumas and managed to thrive. This book looks at the resilience and what traits they use to persevere. Not only was this book on the Canadian bestsellers list and was chosen in the U.S. as one of the three top Amazon choices for the fall, it was positively reviewed by Psychology Today, Entertainment Weekly. It's been translated into 11 languages. It was featured on Good Morning America, and it was in the top 10 books taken out of the U.S. libraries in the year 2021. Oh, my gosh. I love this book. Amazing. <laughs> That's quite an intro. Well, I know. Once I hear it, it sounds good. <laughs> Sounds amazing, right? Could any of us write a book like that? Well, welcome and thank you so much for being here today, Kathy. It's a privilege and honor to have you with us. Great to be here, lady. Great. Well, tell us first, as I always ask, like why the habit of compassion of all the habits you could have chosen? Tell because us why. That's the least easy for me. That's what I'm working on now. So I thought I might as well talk about what I'm working on so that it will be um it'll be something that it, it's a work in progress. Because yes. I, I, you know, I'm, um, I have my positive traits and I have my negative, and I don't think that compassion is or was one of my traits. Um, I mean, I, I, I wasn't cruel, but I, you know, I, <laughs> I wouldn't list it in the top ten, right? So I thought I've, I've been working um, as I'm getting older. Well, now I'm old um, on, on how to develop more compassion. Really, so. so- so I think it's surprising and, and, and listeners may be thinking, you know, you're a psychologist, right? You had to right. listen for a living. Like, how could you yeah. not have this habit as, you know, a default habit? I know. People think that. People think that. I've just decided to come clean with it, right? <laughs> I love that. I love that. Radical honesty. Fashion closet. Right? <laughs> uh, no, well, I think what when I have uh, patients and, you know, I mean, I did, did a PhD in psychology, et cetera, and Darwin's influence on Freud. And I really like academic work a lot. And when I would have patients, I would make very elaborate uh, plans for how I would help them. You know, yes, you know, yes. You depict this, that in your book I, so I well. I would do that. I would have, I, you know, I always had a plan for the following, you know, I, I would say my, my forte is intellectuality. Right. But, but but then uh, some people, but then, so that's what I do. So like, you know, when someone says, you know, I was raped by the side of the road, the first thing I say is, did you get his license? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, that kind of thing where like uh, the practical brain is yeah, firing. That's right. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 And the only reason I started working on compassion is because I gave so many talks after um, I wrote Good Morning Monster and people said, how did you listen to that stuff? Oh, my God. How how did you not, you know, collapse? Like especially Alana and all of her trauma. And, yeah. you know, I just thought I just looked at it as this is um an intellectual problem. It's a puzzle that I have to solve at work. You know, I have to take all of this and I have to say, now, how am I going to get her to see this? That's the job of the psychologist. Yeah. Right? And yeah. just so listeners can understand this amazing book that you've written profiles five um, folks that you, that you worked with for about three to five years each, yeah. and they had tremendous trauma. And when I say tremendous trauma, one gentleman was locked in a room as a child between for two to five years old. One gentleman was taken away from his parents and put into an Indian reformatory school. I mean, really, and, right. and, and traumatic sexual abuse. I mean, very extreme trauma, right? That I would think most psychotherapists would encounter maybe, but this, I mean, was really, you had these clients and you may have had more of them. So well, I, I chose them because I, I wanted to choose people that I really liked because I think mm -hmm. that, um, 
and you know that I really had compassion for or that I identified with. Now maybe compassion is the wrong word, but I identified with and right. and I felt that they really got better. So I thought whenever you write about people that you're 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 just seeing professionally, um, I think you're fooling the audience. They know if you really care about someone. Yeah. 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 I so mean, you I, established amazing connection with these folks because so I decided to use them just because of the connection that mm-hmm. I had. Yeah. Is that normal for a psychotherapist to develop that level of connection with a patient? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not for me, it's not because usually I see people for, you know, six months to a year. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but when you have somebody who's come in, totally traumatized is, is unable, like with Peter, who's unable to, you know, he's sexually dysfunctional, everything was dysfunctional. And we had to sort of take him apart and begin. And then we had to put him back together, you know, bit by tiny bit. Right. And and then we found out about his parents and his mother in China and what she lived through. And, uh, you know, so that we, so it became, it, it became, identified with him because it was, it was like, he was my child. And then he grew up into a man over the four years. It was amazing. Uh, In the book, not only do you become sort of the surrogate mother to many of them, if not all of them, but then you actually then tell them they've sort of graduated from your therapy at certain points. And I've been to a lot of therapy and no one's ever told me that I needed to stop coming. (laughs) Oh really? Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. I was I was pleasantly surprised that they were yeah. able to sort of leave the nest, and you were giving right. them that yeah. that permission, right? right? Yeah. And and something else that I thought that listeners should know is that these folks came to you, and on the outside, they kind of had it together. It wasn't like they were destitute, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. One was a very well known rock musician. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The native one was uh, a long distance truck driver, owned his own home. You know. It, 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 Nobody was destitute. No one was destitute. But once you got to dig and you did this sort of archaeological dig, their trauma was, you know, uh, limiting them from a living a life. And mm-hmm. and you described them all as heroes, which they absolutely were and are. And, you know, one of the things that really came up for me is that there's so many people who don't live or don't thrive or end up conquering that level of trauma. So what made these people unique? What do they have in common? Well, that's really interesting, and I, I was thinking of writing some papers on this as well. Um, they they were all tenacious in their own way, right? Mm. I mean, they, they were they were they were survivors. Like mm. when you they you know, were they were real survivors, and when you uh, like when you look at Alana, you you know you, they they're all different. Some of them are very wealthy, some of them were poor. Yeah, but it, they were the type that said, "Okay, I have to do this." Like, do you remember Madeline? She was my very yes. rich patient, and she you know she was so frightened to confront certain stuff. She couldn't wear high heels because her legs were shaking so much. Yeah, you know, but she pushed herself ahead. There wasn't a point at which she said, "I can't do this." Yeah, and so what gives them that sort of inner resilience, if you will, for lack of a better term. You know, when you look back, when you look back on it, like, well, look at uh, Danny, he was my yes. native patient, right? Yes. And uh. his, 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 yeah, his parents were hunters and they were uh, hunters up north, way yes. north in Canada. They were Crees. And uh, for the first five years of his life, um, they, uh, they were trappers. So they he helped his father with the traps. The mother and father did their job well. They had two children. They all got along perfectly. So he had five years of a loving parent, mm-hmm. parents. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then the uh, government came in one day and said, we're taking your children. They're going, they have to go to a, a school 2,000 miles away. There's nothing you can do about it. I don't know when you'll see them again. Yeah, that and that was just the beginning of his trauma. And you know, I read the family trauma. The family then fell into then they said that they lost their hunting grounds. And so he had no job. So they wound up living in the in, in the reserve with nothing to do. Then they got into alcoholism, like everything fell apart. But he had five good years. Yeah. Five good years yeah. is enough for any kid, really. It's enough, you think? I, I think if if yeah. I think it is if if you're uh they say five to seven, but I think yeah. if you, You've had five good years. Um, and, and also he, he learned a work ethic. Yeah. You know, you know yeah. I, so, I mean, I morning at four checking those traps, you know, doing all the work um, and, you know, 
you know, to bring it back to my own story, I, my mother died by suicide when I was nine and I had a lot of trauma after that, but I've had many therapists who said, because I had those nine years with yeah. her, yeah. that's why I have some yeah. sort of semblance of normalcy, yeah. but, uh-huh. but tell us what happens in the first five years of someone's life that gives them the ability to have some good imprinting when bad things happen later. What happens in the first five years? Uh, well, all kinds of that is when almost all behavior modification happens. That's when you learn you learn to um, what what's good and what's bad. You learn that your parent is uh, and, and you, first your parent mother is part of you. Then she's an extension of you. Then she's close to you and loving you, and she's your significant other. She's your attachment, and you learn attachment. You, you learn attachment is learned within eighteen months. You know, really? You, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you, if you, you know, if you're, so the people often say, oh, I, you know, these adopted kids are so much trouble. Da, 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 da. And, I, and I say, when did you get them? And they'll say, well, they were two and a half. I want to say a huge amount has happened. You know, mm-hmm. just attachment. They've they they've missed a whole bunch of things that we're we are absolutely programmed to go through. Yeah, you know, programmed to learn a language, right? I mean, we learn if you don't learn a language between five and 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 eight, seven, you won't be able to speak. Or if you learn a foreign language at the age of twelve and over, you'll have an accent. You know, there we have open windows for learning things. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the windows way open when you're when you're you know zero to five. Yeah. yeah. So developmental windows of attachment, again, to repeat, it's just the first 18 months of life. And I've read Attached. If no one's read it, it's it's amazing. If you haven't read it, it's such an amazing book. And it, it does yeah. describe these different levels of attachment theory, right? Yeah. Um, at a very basic level. And, and to go back, right? So let's go back to these folks that you write about so beautifully in your book, Good Morning Monster. And one of the things that really struck me is you just said that Dan who's a Native American living in Northern Canada. He overcomes this trauma from being separated from his parents, but he becomes this even better trapper. I think you said at some point because he had PTSD and you said that people have PTSD. This is really interesting. I think have Mm -hmm. such a heightened sense of awareness. They can use that. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us more. Well, um, what happens is when you have trauma, like, uh, if let's say there's a blood, you're a Vietnam war vet and, and, and you hear like a, a car backfire, like hmm. you're so hyper aware that you hit the ground and, hmm. and it, it, it brings back all of these memories. So what happens is, and I think Darwin is right about this. Darwin says, you know, what happens is you get programmed to when something is really terrifying, it fills a lot of your brain and it warns you. It's a warning system. PTSD is a warning system mm-hmm. it's warning you that this is happening again. But then it, what happens is the PTSD gets turned up way too loud. So it isn't really you're not really in Vietnam. It's just a car backfiring. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, so but but what happens is you you tune in totally to um, to your surroundings because you're hyper alert. That's why people that have PTSD are so anxious because they're they're hyper. It's like their adrenaline will not stop. It just mm-hmm. keeps pumping and pumping and pumping. So it's like you know if you hear a you know a moose out in the in the wild. Well, if in fact your life depends on it, you will hear those footsteps. Yeah, yeah. And, and remember the story about uh, which I thought was incredible ab- about um, Alana. She worked at a law firm and she walked into a a room, a a, a waiting room with all kinds of uh, customers or whatever you call them. And uh, she went and got the police and she Mm -hmm. got the security guard. And there was a guy there who was going to kill the lawyer who um, he he had on one of those vests. He, you know, bulletproof vest. And and she looked at him and she knew he wanted to kill the lawyer who took, said his wife could take his child away. You know, that, that right, kind of right. Thing. Yeah. But but it was like she she's hyper alert to danger. Like she had to be she had to be or she'd be dead. Her father yeah. was dangerous. Her father was extraordinarily dangerous. Right. Right. So um, she had to be, she had to watch for him every second. So it's like where other people are walking in a room and thinking, oh, I think I'll sit down and read a magazine and wait for the lawyer. She's thinking, who could kill me in here? Right, right. So you become almost like, um, I don't want to use the word empathic, but it's like you, you're, you're sensing everything. That's right. right. Yeah. And I mean, that's too much. That's what PTSD is. You're sensing way too much. You're letting way too much in to protect yourself. Right. 
And as right. Darwin says, what happens when, like, if you hear, if a monkey, if a, if a, an elephant is running toward you in the forest, you will forever after know those footprints because you will, you will file them away and say, danger, danger. So you're always learning what's dangerous as a little kid. Right. And then mm. you say, okay, can't do that. Can't do that. But fortunately, most of us don't have huge number of these things, but right. in fact, you do, then you're just hyper alert. Like almost everyone that I had, almost all females that I had were, had a uh, frozen shoulder. Tell me what frozen shoulder is. Frozen shoulder is when it's extraordinarily painful and you can't move your shoulder. And what happens is they basically spend a huge amount of their life like this Mm. in the the, uh, crouch position to attack, like, oh, or or being attacked, like, you know, where, you know, your shoulders go up, right? You're not meant to walk around with your shoulders like this, right? So a lot of them would have have frozen shoulder. And uh, I I was writing, I was going to write a paper uh, on this with a physiotherapist. Cause she, you know, she said to me, I can't believe everyone's been traumatized who has this frozen shoulder, you know? And I said, I know, I know. And, and it really is just from the way you are responding to the world yeah. You're ready for attack. Yeah. We hold that trauma in our bodies. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. And something I thought was interesting and Danny and Peter, two of the characters in your um, book or real people in your book shared mm-hmm. in common was this sort of idea that they were trying to keep themselves safe by sort of not engaging or depersonalizing in mm-hmm. different mm-hmm. ways. They both, but mm-hmm. I, I think both of them said, if I, re- I remember correctly, that they were okay, not feeling, or at least Danny said he was okay, not feeling joy if it meant he couldn't feel right. Pain. Right, because he, I finally realized that he was a frozen block. He just froze everything out, and that's what he did when he was at residential school. You know, mm. like he wake up, the guy, kid next to him was dead. He thought, okay, I've learned. If I say this kid is dead, they're going to blame me. So I mm. have to just go to breakfast, and then eventually people might realize that he's dead. You know, yeah. so like, so he just froze everything out, and he said, I, and then some kids went cra- went crazy. You know, became just mental and you know, and raging alcoholics and, you know, all that stuff. And he just said, I'm freezing everything out. I don't want to have any feelings. So, I mean, when our therapy really started was what, I mean, I got on the road was when I said to him, you know, if you can't have any frightening fear, if you don't, can't have any feelings, any frightening feelings, if you don't let any feelings out at all, then you can't have any good feelings. You can't have joy. And I'll never forget. He just looked at me, he had long braids to his waist. And he looked at me and he said, I can live without joy. Yeah. I have like the chills when you say that because yeah. I had the chills when I read it because yeah. Yeah. it's um, like the least of the, what he's hoping for. He's just hoping to stay alive. Yeah. You're in survival mode. And yeah. you know, I, I deal with people that come to me for habits, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of, we deal with behavior change and, right. and one habit I deal with very often is women who tend to reach for alcohol if they're feeling uh-huh too much. Right. And I work with sensitive people, right. Because I am sensitive and that's who I attract, but oftentimes, you know, Brene Brown says it so beautifully that we, we try to block out the dark and in doing so we do, but that we also block out the light. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that we can't have, we can't block one without blocking both. That's right. You've got to let it all out look at it, survey it and say, why do I feel this awful about this? Sort out all those issues and then let, let the joy still be there. But if you don't let all of it out, you know, you're, you've got a whole pile that's in there. Yeah. And so for listeners who may be thinking, well, how do I let it all out? What do you recommend? Therapy. It's <laughs> a good place to start. It's a good place to start where, cause I mean, Danny didn't want to come to therapy, right? He didn't want to come to therapy. His boss uh, was somebody that I had in therapy who owned Mm. this trucking company. And he said his wife and daughter were killed on the highway and Mm. uh, he didn't react at all. He was at work the next day, lost his four-year-old child. His wife came still, you know, didn't react one bit. So he knew there was something wrong with him. And he said, hey, you know, because he's a great, great long distance truck driver because he's alert to stress. You know, like, mm. I mean, this is a truck driver who is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars because, I mean, if you know, the trucking business is a very weird business, but he would, uh, they pick up a huge load of um, Rolex watches, 
you know, so, I mean, that's worth mm-hmm. millions of dollars, that truck mm-hmm. going across Canada, right? Mm-hmm. And and he is, in the, so the, the people from the docks send people to steal it. They send, you know, there's all kinds of people along the way that are trying to get this million dollars worth of this and that. So it's it's not easy being this long distance truck driver with, with this guy who does only uh, high-end things. But he is he is the type that, you know, if he, if he looks in the rearview mirror, he knows exactly what's going on, right? Mm, yeah. Again, hyper alert. Right. Hyper alert. Right. You know, once he was uh, once he, he had to go in to get some food, but he parked right right in front. But he was he was suspicious. And then finally he, it was broken into it. He tore out and, you know, laid all five of them out and they looked like sardines in a can. You know, so, yeah. So, I, so this is oh, the, the um, owner of the company said, you are very important to me. I don't want to lose you. I don't want you to have a nervous breakdown. There's something wrong with you. Right. So I think you need to go to this therapy. I went really helpful for me. Right. And he was like, therapy. Like, I mean, that's the last thing he totally. Yes. Yes. Totally the last thing he wanted. So, but I mean, he never would have come on his own. Yeah. 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 So, but what a beautiful gift. And I think what's coming up for me is obviously COVID was very different than having child being locked in a room like Peter as a child or whatever. But, but I do think there's a low level of PTSD that we all sort of suffer from COVID to some level. And I do see people, people that I coach um, feeling like they're sort of not having a lot of feelings, right? They're feeling a little frozen and a much lower level, obviously, than severe, than the severe trauma that you've described so beautifully in your book. But how do we unfreeze? How do we let joy back in with keeping ourselves safe? I think you have to do it little by little. Because we're, you, what happens is your mind is, that's why therapy, therapy for these people took a long time. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. like one problem they came in with, like, hey, I get nervous. Right. You know, none of, you know, it was like they had to, we had to go from the ground up. Yeah. But you, can't, you can't let uh, all your trauma out at once because you're protecting it. You, well, that's what defense mechanisms are. If you, if you don't have defense mechanisms, you're psychotic. Everybody yeah. has to be defended. You have to, you yeah. have to, that's what, I mean, you know, as Freud says, defense mechanisms are, you know, they get a bad rap, but they are actually hugely important. Well, tell us for listeners who may be wondering what defense mechanisms are. Give us some examples. Okay. So you repress things. You, uh, you know, you um, belittle things. You say, oh, that's not a big deal, or I'm not going to think about that. Um, or, you know, or whenever that comes in my mind, I, I say, I say it wasn't that bad. Right. Mm-hmm. Or I repress it. That's the most common is repressing, okay. like literally just not remembering it. So things make you make you very anxious when you see something that relates to something that's happened to you, but you don't remember it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it's you know, it, it's like um, I'm trying to think of one of the th- oh, Alana. Remember when her father was mm-hmm. almost drowned her in the boat? Right. Whenever she gets near water, she she becomes really anxious, like it becomes her job to stay alive. Right. But she didn't realize that for a long, long time until that boat incident came back. Yeah. And you can't bring back all the bad things in your life. And it's in one in one or two days or in a, or in a week, because, you know, it's too much for your mind. Your mind is protecting your sanity. That's yeah. its job. That's the job yeah. of defense mechanisms to protect you. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, you have to do sort of things, you know, little by little by little. I mean, with with Danny, he was he he, uh, well, part of it has to do with native culture, which really interests me. I mean, um, I live in Canada and Canada's, you know, in the U.S., the big, huge issue is is blacks and what's going to happen with blacks. And, you know, everyone, it's the race thing. It's the race thing. Well, in Canada, it's the race thing as well, but it's race with uh, with natives. Because yeah. tons of because we have so many uh, we have so many of them and because they've been sent to all m- majority of them have been sent to these schools and uh, then they weren't able to parent their own children. Yeah, um, and there was it, a book I read recently, um, and I'm going to forget the name, but it was about the reformatory schools in the early 1900s in Canada, and it was called. I'll think of it during the break. But, of them. Yeah, there's a, yeah, many of them. Yeah. But yeah, and you also referenced Tommy Orange, his book, but it takes place yeah. in Oakland, which I did yeah. read, yeah. Um, which was so beautiful. There's but, no there, uh, there. There, there. Oh, that book is just, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, we're going to go to break. But when we come back, I want to talk more about sort of this Native American piece, but also this piece about how we can sort of unfreeze ourselves and let ourselves open to feeling again. Because I think- as humans, you know, we, we want to keep ourselves safe. 
Right. And that sort of trumps, trumps all yeah. the happy and good things that uh-huh. are waiting uh-huh. for us. Right. I, I think it also has to do with authenticity ah. of being, you know, of being an authentic person. Right. Yeah. I mean, like I, um, and I think that really depends too on, on your parents on you know, on, on who, how accepting people are of the real you. And if your mother and father aren't accepting of the real you, you know, or there's whenever you say something, you know, they say, go, don't say that ever again. No, we don't need to talk about that outside of the house. You know, that's all that sort of stuff. You, you, you become less and less authentic. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you, you build a false self and it's really, by the time the false self is built, it works. It works. You know, you've, you're successful in the world, you know, you, you, you know, but then what happens is you marry, you have children, you know, all of that stuff and you're not authentic. You don't know how to, to be a real person to a real child because you're a pretend person. And then you have a midlife crisis. (laughs) (laughs) And then that's right. At like 45, you go, Oh my God, I've never been me. Yeah. Never been me. Yeah. On that note, we're going to go to break. So I'm going to put a pin in it, but um, hang tight, everybody. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes with Kathy Gildener talking about her beautiful book, Good Morning Monster, and talking about the habit of compassion. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Try out a free coaching session with your host, Lady Fuller, to learn more about our individualized and corporate coaching programs. Learn to drop bad habits and pick up healthier habits to live a healthier life. Email her at lady at happinessmba.com. That's L-A-D-Y at happinessmba.com. Or check out our coaching business at habits, the letter for happiness.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Want to reward clients, customers, or employees with a gift that will blow their socks off? We at International Gifting Company have your next corporate event covered. We carry 250 personalized gifts for on-site incentive events. Or we can create virtual gift boxes your employees and clients can receive at home. Contact us today for a quick and free proposal. We love to wow! Contact info at intlgiftingco.com or check out our webpage at intlgiftingco.com. It's your world. Motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Habits for Happiness. To reach the show today, call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now, back to our program, and here again is Lady Fuller. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Habits for Happiness. We are here today talking about the habit of compassion with Kathy Gildener and her beautiful book, Good Morning Monster, in which she depicts five heroes that have overcome severe trauma and are thriving today. And we had just been talking about Danny, one of the, the characters slash real people in her book, who's a um, you know native native Indian. I don't know what the term is in Canada, the politically correct term. Here we call me. Oh, there's Americans. always a new one. And now it, it's now uh, First Nation. First Nation um, in Canada and some of the trauma that he he underwent. And one of the things that we were talking about is how we post-COVID, just just as listeners, can let in the light and keep ourselves still safe. So what are some techniques for the average human being that they can, you know, overcome this sort of mild, I think, low-level depression slash PTSD that we all have incurred, which no one seems to be talking about? Yes, yes. Um, 
actually, I think people are beginning to talk about it. Good. Yeah. Because they, um, like example from my own life, I called this woman and said, you know, we haven't seen each other in ages. We can go out, let's go out to dinner. She goes, I'm not ready. Yeah. I said, what do you mean you're not ready? Like, come on. It's, it's not over. It will never be over, but it's over enough that, you know, we're all back to our right. lives. She says, yes. she said, it all just seems so confusing to me and hard. I don't know how I ever lived my life. You know? Yeah. 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 Well, that's I, an example, right? Yeah. Of how, yeah. how we can be affected by this. She made her life tiny. We all did. We all, we all did. Life tiny. And so when she said, you know what? I loved the tiny life. I didn't have to, be, you know, I didn't, wasn't responsible to anybody. I didn't have this. I didn't have grandchildren. I didn't have, and nobody could come over. I just read books. And she said, I'm much, I, I, she said, I'm, I'm happier just by myself. And I said, that's what you feel, but you're actually going through, you know, some kind of bizarre thing that you don't want to go out. You used to go out all the time. You know, but mm. so that I was just reading in the New York Times the other day um, about uh, getting people back to work. I mean, have you been following that? Yes. If well, I mean, in the U.S., and I coach a lot of executives, right? Obviously, we can't, you can't get help in a restaurant, but, but no. little, little do people know that it goes up the strata. It goes right, right up the strata. There even- is not people at every level. Right. Mm-hmm. I even have folks that are at the VP or more yeah. senior levels that can't actually take a promotion because they can't yeah. get people to backfill their jobs. That's right. That's right. Uh, I have a, 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 a psychologist friend who's a headhunter for big organizations and for big, uh, and she can't find the people. She can't find people. She said the same thing is happening that's happening with people that were waitresses. Like, I can't bear to go back. It's happening with executives. People think people have this fantasy that it's just, um, you know, uh, minimum wage jobs that people don't want to return to. No, it has. It's really much more about pressure than it is about money. Mm, tell us more. It's more about pressure than it is about money. Yeah. I think this is a misnomer, right? right? That people think it's that everyone got government handouts, which could be true That's or right. whatever. It could be true, but it's it, it's because when they offer, like this headhunter said, when they offer this, this, or this, um, they, they are like, uh, I'll have to think about it. And then some of them say they'll take the job and then they don't show up. Yeah. Like, who can show up that's hired to be an executive? Like everybody yeah. shows up. Right? Yes, yes, yes. You know, showing up is how you got to be an executive, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, it, I mean, it's it's really interesting because what I think part of what's happened is we we got institutionalized into taking the bus, going to work, getting on the subway, doing this, handling all this, shopping on the way home, taking mm-hmm. care of the kids. And the once you don't do that for two years, it's like, oh my god, I don't know how I ever did that. Hmm. You know, it's a I little bit I, like. I, I, yeah, the rat race, the pressure yeah. of the rat race and yeah, deciding right. that you're not going to be in it anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's really interesting. And this headhunter was telling me that she has a whole headhunting firm and they're all going through the same thing. It's, it isn't just like New York City or big cities or small, you know, there's nothing in common. It's like it has to do with it has to do with everywhere where people are just saying, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go back. They're offering huge incentives to get people back into the office. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. So, so back to, let's go back to the habit of compassion because this is such an amazing habit. What listeners may be thinking, well, I I feel compassionate or what is compassion to you? What does that look like? That's the thing that I'm working on. That's why I I decided to come on today and try to be authentic. Yes. Okay. So I wouldn't get on and say, I thought, well, I could get on and say, I'm compassionate. And this is what made me compassionate. No, I'm, I'm working on compassion. How does one work on compassion? All right. I've had several false starts. My first (laughs) false start was um, donating to charities like that, that, you know, because I said, okay, one thing I could do is, you know, do that. So I, but that's just writing a check. That's not compassion. That's, you know, it's, as Bob Dylan says, you know, charity, you know, when you give to charity deduction organizations, it's not chair, it's not compassion, right? So I realized that wasn't making me compassionate, right? So mm-hmm. then I said, okay, I'm going to start working for out of the cold. Uh, we have that in Canada. I don't know if right. you have, you know, you know, all the, it's, um, you know, dinner and over and, and, and a place to sleep. Right? For homelessness. Okay. Homeless, yeah. homeless yeah. shelter, I think what you call it in the US. So uh, I decided, okay, I'll do that, right? So um, I did that, didn't work. Didn't work. I wasn't very compassionate to the people that, you know, I wasn't very compassionate well, to the people. And they, you know, like pop, many of the people are there are socially inadequate, you know. So they say, um, I'll be back in 10 minutes. They don't come back. They're unreliable. So I, I thought, like, 
I'm not compassionate about this. Compassion is where you really reach out and people's faults and you, and you say, okay, this is what they can't do. I need to help them with that. Right. Mm. Um, But I wasn't really very good at that. So then I decided I would just make compassion within my own life, not forget the out of the cold and the, and the homeless shelter thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Even one of the guys in the homeless shelter said to me, I don't think this is a job for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's when you know you need to take your compassion elsewhere. (laughs) I said, oh, my God, you are so right, Orestes. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So then I, I, you know, I I finally decided I would. I would have a role model. I have a role model, my friend, Anne. she's extremely compassionate. That's her whole thing. She's too compassionate, really. But so I thought, okay, how would this compassionate person act in this situation? How would Anne act in this situation? So I, I put on this hat of somebody you know who's really compassionate. We all have someone we know who's Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, so associate with someone who's compassionate. That's step one. Step one, associate <laughs> with someone and then say, how would they handle this situation? Mm. And then you, you, if you have a very close friend who's compassionate, which we all do, then you, you know what would go through their mind. They'd say it doesn't matter that they, you know, they're unreliable. It doesn't matter that they lied. That's one of the reasons they're in a homeless shelter. <laughs> right? You know, my friend Anne would say, "Well, what do you think? Who do you think you're going to meet there?" Right? I mean, she said, "You know, like get, you know, you, you got it, you got it, you get underneath that, right?" So mm-hmm. it would be like, "Oh, okay." So now I try to picture this compassionate person, and I say, "Okay." I'm going to do what she's done would do in this situation. And it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to do. You know, mm-hmm. I'm more the type that could get an army organized very quickly, but that yes. one-to-one compassion, you know, it is, is difficult. Right. And okay, uh, so the first step is asking what your avatar slash associate friend would do. Who's very yeah. compassionate. Yeah. And step two is. Step two is, is trying to role play it. Okay. First of all, people aren't, whatever trait you're lacking in life, you know, you can't just say, I'm going to be more compassionate. You can't do that because you don't know how to do it. You Mm -hmm. haven't done it for a reason, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you say to yourself, okay, how, how, how am I going to feel? I mean, you're, you're not compassionate at first. At first, you're just role-playing a compassionate person and then eventually you become more compassionate. Yeah. And wouldn't you say that we all have compassion within us? It just might be a very atrophied muscle. Oh yeah, 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 absolutely. And I have uh, tons of compassion for um, people that are mentally ill. I, I that for some reason I you know I'm cre- incredibly compassionate with that. But you know, people that'll show up at a half an hour late for dinner, I'm I'm not compassionate. You know, I'm like, where were you? Come on, this is. <laughs> you know? But I want to. You got to, I'm trying to be more compassionate on a day to day level of like everybody mm-hmm. has stuff. Nobody's perfect. You know, are you, you know, are you perfect? No. Right. Yeah. Everyone has stuff. I mean, I think that's the one thing that we, when we get really myopic that mm -hmm. we can all sort of not see is Mm -hmm. that, and, and, you know, you've seen enough people in your therapy practice. I've seen enough people in my coaching practice, like everybody's got a story that you don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't have trouble being non-judgmental. And that's one of the things you need as a therapist. It's like, oh, okay, that happened. Okay. You know, I used to be in forensic at a psychiatric hospital, you know, oh, you killed your father because you couldn't, okay, you didn't want another beating. So that's what you did. Okay. What happened next? You know, where I'm not judgmental, right? But I mean, compassion is, 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 it's not about being judgmental. It's about actually saying, I'm not going to judge this behavior that is in that is inadequate like you know as my friend ann said to me it doesn't matter how inadequate it is this is what they're doing and you have to meet people on the level that they're on and that's hard to do it's like very hard to do very hard to do you know so what i hear you saying is that compassion to you and it's a beautiful definition is meeting people on the level that they're on without judgment that's right that's right. Yeah. And that's really hard. It, it's hard to do when, in fact, if your forte is efficiency, getting things done, getting intellectual tasks sorted out quickly, um, then you, you ha- it's hard to have compassion for the opposite. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's really hard to do that, right? But in fact, that's, you know, uh, I mean, I remember going to, to Catholic school uh, with the horror of it all. But uh, I remember, you know, the, the, as the priest used to say, we're all God's children. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one of the things that my friend Anne says to herself, we're all God's children. I mean, to pull the religious hat on, like you just say, you know, this person is, for some reason, isn't doing anything they're supposed to, but they, they, they're not happy. Right. They're not doing it. They're not doing it selfishly. They're 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 undermining themselves. You know, just don't judge it and just get in there and help it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that helps me, and I am that sort of overachiever kind of person. And sometimes I used to have a lot of non-compassion for people that didn't move like with my RPMs, right? But you know, yeah. most people don't. So then I became really righteous about myself. Right. Yeah, which right. we as human beings love to do. We love to yeah. be right. But right. moving into this sort of ideal of compassion, which I've also been working on the past 10 years or so, mm-hmm. is also like it's kind of coupled with this idea of kindness, right? It's like, I'm this way and how you are is kind of none of my business, right? right. Like I'm not, right. it, it, you know, we need people of every every kind of person on this right. earth to make us right. whole. right? And, and that's sort of the beauty is that we're all different and understanding that to have followers, you need leaders and to have people yeah. that are super hyper productive, you need people that aren't, you know, to have um, producers, you need buyers, right? right. Like there's, yeah. Yeah. we need people of every kind. And just because people aren't like us, because they're different, doesn't mean they're bad. They're just sort of different. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I, absolutely. And it's, and it's hard to do. It's hard to do because when you're a child, I mean, we all get positively reinforced for things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I got positively reinforced for, oh, you did well at school. Look what you did. You got an A. You're a good girl, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought, I am a good girl. Wow, that's great, right? Um, But I I mean, in terms of uh, my friend Anne, she she said, I'm, she also runs a huge, business and, you know, knows when to hire and fire. So she's, you know, she isn't just wimp, but her parents. Yes. Compassion's not for wimps. Compassion is for heroes. It's for heroes. Yeah, I know. And so what she, what she said was every time that that she would, you know, uh, be kind to someone in her class who was, uh, you know, had down syndrome or something, and she would bring them home and, you know, her mother would say, what a good, kind person you are. Mm -hmm. So she got reinforced for, for being compassionate because her whole family was into charity and compassion. Yeah. And, and she got reinforced for that. Yeah. I mean, I love this idea of kindness as a currency, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think one of the reasons why people that I coach and, and maybe, you know, don't never lead with compassion is because one, like you're saying, we're not, it's not reinforced as young people. We're yeah. not necessarily taught it. And yeah. the whole reason why I have the show habits for happiness and my coaching practice is that we are taught that all the good things outs- live outside of ourselves. And or no. many of us yeah. are taught yeah. That's and the right. good That's things right. actually live yeah. inside of ourselves. Yeah. And so, yeah, exercise doing, lady. That's just totally a great line. Yeah. And, but it's like, it, you know, people long time ago knew this, but somehow yeah, in our current yeah. life, yeah. everyone's forgotten it. So I'm here to tell people that these muscles inside of ourselves, one, right. including compassion, right. And it's cousin, which I would say yeah. is kindness. They all live in us, Yes, but we yes. just don't know that they do. And once we're able to sort of turn them on or they're atrophy atrophy because other things, you know, it's like your appendix is atrophy, right. Or, you know, it, it, yeah, it's a great example, right. (laughs) We don't have to eat raw meat. So it doesn't, it's not there, you know? So if you're positively, if you turn out to be good in school or a good leader, then, then, you know, and that's what your parents want. Then Mm -hmm. they say you're perfect. You've got, you know, you've done all of this. And so you don't miss compassion you know, and then you grow up and you have children and then you have to be compassionate. Nobody yeah. cares how smart you it. are. Nobody yeah. cares how smart you are, how well you've done in business. You have to suddenly be compassionate because yeah. they're different from you. You know, they may be far, the fall far from the tree, right? You have to be compassionate. And you have, and, and the thing is, if you're not prepared for it, uh, it's like, wow, a whole new learning curve. Yeah. Yeah. And 
And no one really prepares us for that unless you do grow up maybe like Anne who've been, you know, been, those things have been cultivated, right? So remember, I'm a girl born in the girl, that's hilarious, uh, (laughs) born, born in the 50s, born in the 40s. So girls got all kinds of positive reinforcement for being kind, compassionate, um, uh, understanding, and quiet. Those were the good girls. Right. And, and, and now that that's, that's gone. That used to be, you know, Oh, she's such a good girl. Oh, she's the prom queen. Why? Oh, she's very quiet and likes everyone, you know? Um, and that was the image. You know, I mean, if you mm-hmm. were, if you were stepped out of that image, you were considered eccentric, which was considered bad. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, now what I give, I was giving a talk at a high school the other day and they were all like, how much do you earn in this profession? Okay. If you're in this profession for five years, then what happens? Then do you do this? This, I thought, wow, these girls are just totally not talking about the prom. They are totally focused on the future, what they need to take in university, what they need to cover in, in high school. I, it was, I just thought they've been de- developed Complete achievement, achievement focus. Now, it used to be if you were compassionate, you were a, a nice girl. And if you were achievement oriented, you were a good boy. Mm-hmm. You know, but now that's there's a blur there. So what would you say to listening parents who are thinking, you know, how they cultivate good humans? Like, what are the what are the things to, to ingrain in our younger, younger offspring? I think. When somebody does something nice for someone, like you know, when you when and I think modern parents know this. I have a grandchild, and I sometimes take him to the sandbox, and I'm shocked by modern parents. I mean, I'm shocked by the things that they say because no one ever said it to me. You know, like my grandson will share his truck in the sandbox, right? And and then later his mother will say, "That was really nice when you shared that truck when you let the boy who didn't have any toy." Yeah. With your play with that truck, she said that was a really nice thing to do. I was very proud of you, and I thought, proud of you is that that big a deal? (laughs) (laughs) Compassion, happy compassion. Truck already, right? Yeah, no, but I thought, wow, that is she. She's saying, I, you know, I want to be have a kind person, and I'm going to take every little kind thing he does and point it out and say that was really nice. You know, so the next time he goes to the sandbox, he's like, hey, would you like a truck? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. And what do you think if we raise a new generation of people that have these sort of internal strengths of kindness and compassion, then what? You know, I have this odd feeling things won't change, right? Because uh, because I, I notice that you can value kindness and you can value compassion. But remember, we have basic instincts. Mm-hmm. Right? We and those are those are competitive. We have a, a sexual instinct, a competitive instinct, uh, and that's basically it. So uh, I mean, remember that you know that's how, as Darwin says, we stayed alive. If you stayed alive till now, you are a good competitor, right? So yeah. we all have that; it's innate within us. So um, and you know, it, compassion often loses out to that because it's not a survival instinct. It isn't. Yeah, this is the part of rewiring us for modern day society because we've got these primitive brains that are operating on fight or flight or freeze. (laughs) Or in a moment of um, danger, tiny, tiny bit of danger, um, you will flash. I I mean, I will flash right to the instinct of survive Mm -hmm. as opposed Mm -hmm. to compassion, where, you know, like compassion would be okay, we've got to make sure that all of these, you know, people who can't swim can get out of the water first. We've got to make sure da, 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 all of this, you know, but if I saw a tsunami coming at me, my initial instinct would be to get off the water. Yes. But can we rewire our brains? I don't think we can rewire our brains totally. And that's what makes people give up. That's what makes people give up. Like that's why people, I've had some people that give up in therapy and say, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. And I wanted to say, if you take tiny steps, tiny, tiny steps, and you accomplish it, and you give yourself some gratification for that, and you keep doing it day after day, even if you do it for five minutes, it's better. It's much better to do it for five minutes a day than an hour a week. That's not good. You need to do, you need to do these things. It's, you know, it's like exercise. You need to, you know, you need to use these compassionate muscles and then you have to give yourself some positive reinforcement for it. You have to say, Hey, that was, that was really good. You know, self-compassion, self-compassion. Oh yeah. 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 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, whenever, I mean, if I'm again, a child of the fifties. And if you say, if you give yourself, you know, self-compassion, I mean, the phrase then, I don't know what the phrase was with your parents, but you know, mine was uh, no, no bragging, no bragging. And uh, you know, don't tell people any your accomplishments. Don't, don't, no one wants to hear that. You know, yeah, it was, like, I mean, Children weren't very heard, and where when I grew up, we were seen but not heard. So yeah, yeah there was yeah. no there was no real talking about ourselves at all. Yeah, like I could talk. My, I have, I'm selling my parents short because they let me talk about things that bothered me, and they were very there for me. Um, but they, there's that whole Protestant ethic of you don't uh, don't toot your own horn. Don't, mm-hmm. don't don't say I was so compassionate today, man. You should have seen me. Right? They're like, <laughs> if you're compassionate, keep it to yourself. Which also you humility is a good, is a good yes. habit, That's right. but, but we only have a couple of minutes left in the show. So I want people, you to tell people if they want to buy your book books and they want to, you know, hire you to speak or, or yes. anything else, how yes. do they get in touch with you? Well, I have a website. Okay. Uh, and tell us yes. what that is. www.gildener.com. Uh, okay. Yeah. Easy. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, Gildener's G-I-L-D-I-N-E-R. And uh, and I've also written three memoirs. Um, yes. Yeah, because I, I went to work full time at the age of four. So, um, yeah, in my father's drugstore, and I worked with a black delivery car driver on the Niagara frontier, and we delivered all of the uh, narcotics. So I had quite a life from four on. So I wrote, that's why I wrote, uh, so I wrote it from sort of a four-year-old's point of view. And then the next one was... Uh, it was when I was a teenager. And then, you know, then when I went off to Oxford, so uh, it sort of covers my life till 25. And of course people say, why did you, you know, it's very odd to write a memoir when your life ends at 25. And I said, I got married and nothing else happened. <laughs> That's not true. But, but, but Maybe, you know, depending on what your barometer for ha- something right. happening is. So so when the people want to find you, they'll find you there. Are you yep. still doing therapy or are you, are you retired no, from therapy? No, no, don't call me for, I, every time I give one of these talks, people call me, you know, no, I've retired. I, I, <laughs> I say, I, I, I say I've run out of empathy, right? Yeah. She's currently writing a book on compassion. People. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't bother me. I'm busy. Right. <laughs> Well, it's been such an honor to have you on the show today, Kathy. Cool. I really, really, really appreciate it. And my big takeaway is that we all have compassion within us. It's just practicing it very small bits at a time so that tiny we don't muscle. Get develop a tiny, tiny muscle and then build it. Yes, yes. It's just little by little. And please join us next week for another riveting habit that can change your life. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in today. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Habits for Happiness. Please join Lady Fuller for another edition of the program next Friday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, discover how to find your new happy place.